Today we're in John 14, and there was a line in one of the songs earlier that was so fitting uh, to our passage. It went like this, let me all your love accepting, we're accepting all of God's love, let me all your love accepting, love you, Lord, through all my days, let me seek your kingdom only. And my life be to your praise. That's basically a summary of John 14, verses 15 to 24. So the Lord's already been preparing you to hear this message through song. Let's now uh, read God's word starting in verse 15 of John 14. Jesus says this, If you love me, You will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I ask that you would now take your word and plant it deep in us, that we might be conformed to the likeness of Christ. I pray that your spirit would fill us and bring illumination to our minds and that he would thrill our hearts with the person of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, that we may be be all the more fervent to love Christ and keep his commandments. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is an incredibly rich passage. It takes us right to the heart of Christian discipleship. It's got references all over the place to the Trinity, Father, Son, and and Holy Spirit working on, on behalf of the believer. It's one of the key entry points to Jesus' teaching on the Holy Spirit's role in our lives. It exposes the difference between Christ's disciples who have the Spirit and those in the world who do not. It's full of of comfort and courage for the Christian as he lives for for Jesus and with Jesus. And I think we're we're just only going to scratch the surface 
this morning of, of these uh, interrelated topics. But I'm okay with that because uh, the way John writes is, is circular. He'll address a subject and then he'll go on to something else and then he'll come back and address that same subject again later just in further detail. So I'm, I'm okay if I don't cover everything this morning because we're going to get to it eventually because John brings it up so, so much. So, even though I'm not going to get to everything, I just want to highlight three things that I saw when I'm reading this passage. And they're they're three essentials to Christian discipleship that Jesus uses to equip the eleven. If you remember, Jesus is fixing to die on the cross for sinners. He's going back to his Father. uh, But his pathway to the Father is first through death, into the grave. Resurrection and then ascension into heaven. That's his pathway. And before he goes away like that, Jesus spends time equipping his disciples with everything they would need once these events would take place. I mean, they are scared, after all. They, they don't know what's going on. They're confused. They're about to lose their master, apparently. They're afraid of abandonment. The world will laugh at them. It won't like them. What are they supposed to do with the last three years of their lives that they've given to Jesus? They want answers and Jesus is taking the time to prepare them for what's coming. To prepare them how they are to be living. And three essentials to Christian discipleship stand out here. The first one is this. Disciples of Jesus love Jesus. Disciples of Jesus love Jesus. Notice the repetition throughout our passage. Verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And then let's put it negatively. Verse 24, whoever doesn't love me doesn't keep my words. Again and again, Jesus stresses that one of the essentials of Christian discipleship is that disciples love Jesus. In fact, by the way he says it, a love for Jesus is what gives rise to Christian discipleship in the first place. Nobody truly follows Jesus if they don't love him. True obedience to Jesus flows from a heart infatuated with Jesus. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. There's no question about it in Jesus' mind. A heart full of love for Jesus will result in following him. But what does this love for Jesus include? Right? I mean, we've talked about love before. And, and, we've, and we've said that the Bible speaks about love like this. Love is a genuine affection for another's good in God such that we spend ourselves sacrificially to see them obtain it. We've got an affection for somebody out here for their good in God such that we sacrifice that they might have that good in God. That's how we've talked about love. And how we see the Bible talking about love. But when we say that about love, what we're saying 
is that's what our love should look like towards other people, not towards Christ. The way Jesus has loved us, despite our sins and despite our unloveliness, is what teaches us to love other people in the same fashion. But we can't just flip that kind of love around and say that's how we love Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't have any sins. He has no unloveliness in him. There's no good in God that Jesus is lacking. Nothing further about God. He needs us to help him obtain through our sacrificial service. He is the goodness of God. He is altogether lovely. He is what all people desperately need. There may be some overlap in the way we love Jesus and others. It's personal. It's affectionate. It's other-oriented. It moves us to serve. But we must not lose sight of what makes it different. We love him not despite who he is. We love him because of who he is. He is infinitely lovely. He is the ultimate end of all of our derivative loves for others. He's worthy of all our affection, devotion, and obedience. We might call those three aspects of our love for Jesus. Affection devotion and obedience. He's worthy of all our affection. One of, the, one of Jesus' prayers in John 17, verse 26, is that the love that the Father has for His Son may be in us. And elsewhere in our New Testament, we see that it is the Father who delights in His Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased If you trust in Jesus this morning, part of his work on the cross was to ensure that the Father's own affection for his Son might be in us. When God saved us, all the pleasure the Father takes in Jesus because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus does as obedient Son, all the pleasure the Father takes in Jesus, all of it excites our own ad admiration for Jesus. He doesn't leave his disciples re relating to him in some sort of dispassionate duty. The relationship is one that's marked by affection. Same sort of intimacy we see between father and son, the father has for the son, should be in us. The same sort of intimacy a bride has for her husband, to use the Old Testament relationship of God's people relating to God, this is the kind of love we have for Christ. Jesus is also worthy of all our devotion. I get this from Matthew 6, 24. Uh, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise 
the other you cannot serve God and money. Love includes devotion. The same sort of devotion is in mind when God gave Israel the command to love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, telling them to love him with all the intensity of their being. Which is rather remarkable, as a side note. Jesus knows God alone is to be obeyed. And here he's telling the disciples, keep my commandments. He is God. So this same sort of devotion is in mind when God gives Israel the command to love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Israel obeyed Yahweh. Israel was was, was told to obey Yahweh with all their devotion because he had loved them already and rescued them from slavery in Egypt when they didn't deserve it. In the same way, we owe Jesus all our devotion for loving us and rescuing us from slavery to sin when we didn't deserve it. Affection and devotion are aspects of our love and now obedience. Jesus is worthy of all our obedience. His loveliness should move our wills to act on who he is, the merciful Savior and the exalted Lord of heaven and earth, which is what uh, leads us to consider the second essential in Christian discipleship, namely, disciples of Jesus obey Jesus. This is just basic Christianity here today. Disciples of Jesus obey Jesus. Let's hear him again in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So loving will mean keeping. Verse 21 Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Again, keeping the commandments of Jesus evidences our love for Jesus. Now, we should be careful here. Jesus isn't saying that we initiate a love relationship with him through obedience. As if to say we can win God's love by something we do. As Christians... We might deepen a love relationship with Jesus through obedience. That's clear from verse 21 when Jesus is responding. Jesus' love for us is, in, is based on our love for him. It's also in other places like Jude 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. So we might deepen a love relationship with Jesus as Christians through our obedience. But we know from elsewhere that the Father initiates a love relationship with us. He chose us in eternity past, even despite our rebellion. There there was nothing in us that was worthy of his love. Nothing that we could do to win his love in our fallen state. God simply chose to love us. It was his initiative. Romans 5.8, we read it earlier, also says that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Again, his initiative. And then 1 John 4, 19 very plainly teaches, we love because God first loved us. So we don't initiate a love relationship with Jesus 
through obedience. Rather, we obey Jesus because of the love relationship God has already established with us. We obey his commands as lovers who know that Jesus is trustworthy and that Jesus has our best interest in mind. We only need to look at the cross to remind us of that. That Jesus has our best interest in mind. When we look at that display of love on the cross, Jesus dying in the place of sinners, we come to love the person who's giving the commands. Loving Jesus becomes the root of all our obedience. Our hearts sing out, Why wouldn't I obey this one who gave his life for me? I don't deserve to obey Jesus. And yet, I find myself loving him, obeying him. But what exactly are we obeying here? Verse 15 says it's Jesus' commandments. And so does verse 21. But Jesus then seems to broaden it out a bit in verse 23. We're told to keep his word in the singular. Then in verse 24, we're told to keep his words in the plural. And then he's back to the singular at the end of verse 24. And then he also reveals its source, the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These are complementary ways of saying the same thing. Jesus' word, in the singular, is a collective reference to all his individual utterances, his words, and those words reveal his person and they reveal his mission as well as the authoritative demands that revelation puts on our lives, his commandments. So you've got the main message, his word. It's filled with all kinds of words about who he is, what he's doing. And those words must move us to obedience when we hear them. Basically, we obey everything about the Father's authoritative revelation in the Son. Our obedience cannot be reduced to following a bunch of disconnected moral Directives. Our obedience must be connected with how those directives, those commands, stem from God's revelation in Jesus Christ. That's why so many billboards and church marquees get it wrong. Love your neighbor. That's meaningless without Jesus. So when we hear his commands, we must hear them in connection with God's revelation in Christ. So when he commands, come to me and drink, our obedience is linked to the revelation that Jesus is eternal life and gives living water to sinners. When he commands, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Our obedience is linked to the revelation that Jesus is worthy of all my life. When he commands, believe in the light. Our obedience is linked to the revelation that Jesus has come as the light to rescue a world that already sits in darkness. 
When he commands, take up your cross and follow me, it's connected to the revelation of the salvation he obtains for us first in his own death. When he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, it's linked to the revelation of his own selfless love for us. When he says, if you don't renounce all that you have, you cannot be my disciple, it's linked to the revelation that Jesus is a far greater treasure than anything this world can offer. When he says, you must, you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect, it's linked with the revelation that he is judge and will stand victorious over the nations. When he commands, go and make disciples of all nations, It's linked with the revelation that he has died for the forgiveness of sins among all peoples. That he has authority to bring all peoples to repentance. And that he will be with us to the end of the age. So this is what Jesus' disciples obey. And this is how we obey. We obey everything about the Father's authoritative revelation in the Son. God's revelation in the Son must affect the choices we make, the priorities we set, the money we spend, the way we parent, the work that we do in our various vocations, the people that we meet, the Saturdays that we plan, how fast we drive. Read Romans 13. What leaders we elect, what generosity we show to employees, everything. We obey him in everything. If we love Jesus, we will live for him. We will strive to obey him in all things. Not just things we're involved in on Sunday morning. Not just things we're involved in on Wednesday nights. Our Sunday songs must square with our Monday to Saturday living. Now this teaching flies in the face of what some leaders teach about Christian discipleship. Some leaders in churches teach that you can be saved without necessarily following Jesus. They say it's possible to make Jesus your Savior without making Jesus your Lord. They've even created new categories for so-called Christians who don't obey Jesus' commands. They're called carnal believers as opposed to spiritual ones. They're saved, just not following. Jesus' words are radically different and condemn that teaching. Claiming to love Jesus without obeying him is a contradiction. It shows that someone or something else has hold of your affections, that your devotion lies elsewhere, and that you're submitting to a different master. If you're not obeying, then we have every reason to question whether there's any real connection to Jesus at all. Tim Keller the other day said it well, you cannot have Jesus' rescue without accepting his rule. The test of our love is obedience to the king. 
That's not to suggest we slip into perfectionism or that we don't allow time for the Spirit to work and bring repentance to those who are being confronted with their sin. But it does mean we, tr- we must hold each other accountable in the church to Jesus and his teachings. If we're not following his words, we're not truly loving him. 1 John 5, 3, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. In that sense, Jesus' words challenge us all to prove our love through obedience. But they should also come as a source of encouragement. Because tied to this obedience are promises like the gift of the Holy Spirit in verse 16. Or the Father loving us alongside of His Son in verse 21. Or the Son of God revealing more of Himself to us. Also in verse 21. And even the promise of the Father and the Son being pleased to make their home within us. In other words, never are we merely obeying for the sake of obedience. I said that wrong. Never are we obeying merely for the sake of obedience, but for the sake of experiencing more of Father, Son, and Spirit. All the blessings flowing from a relationship with the triune God of the universe. So let's keep this in mind as we help each other obey Jesus. Obedience to Jesus will flow from souls in love with Jesus. Mere duty cannot generate obedience that's pleasing to God. Obedience flows from a heart enthralled with Jesus' loveliness and the communion with God that He wins for us. And we would do well to point each other to Him often. In our one-on-one chats, in our care group meetings, in our lunches together, in our marriages, the more we set before each other the loveliness of Jesus and put the loveliness of Jesus up against the foolishness of ignoring His words, the more we will be compelled to follow Him. I'm not saying that the decisions to obey Jesus from day to day will always be chipper and easy. There will be days when obeying Jesus is hard. We will be tempted to disobey Him. Because we don't like his command to do this or that. Or we don't understand why we should do it. The temptation will come when we think we know better than he does. Or the more popular idea today, when we think Jesus' commands are simply old-fashioned. But in these moments of temptation, we must remember who he is and how he has loved us. We must preach to ourselves what makes Jesus so lovely, so worthy, and then pursue what pleases our beloved one. It was his love that first awakened our love for him when we looked to the cross and saw our sins taken away. And it will be his worth and preciousness that moves our mouths to speak and our hands and feet to keep serving. How many days do you go with your hand on the doorknob about to go to work, about to go out in the world and you're like, I I do not want to go or I do not want to serve this person or I do not want to go talk to her about Jesus. 
and you're wrestling with yourself. Obey, don't obey. And what is it that turns your hand and gets you out the door? Christ is worth it. Christ is worth it. He is altogether lovely. And if you still think that in those moments you lack what it takes to obey, then you're absolutely right. Which is why Jesus sends us another helper. That's the third essential of Christian discipleship in our passage. Disciples of Jesus enjoy the Spirit's help. Disciples of Jesus enjoy the Spirit's help. None of this love and obedience comes naturally to our fallen flesh. The the world is not naturally loving Jesus. The world naturally hates Jesus. We saw that in uh, chapter 3 where they prefer the darkness over the light. Love and obedience come supernaturally by the gift of the Holy Spirit who, we're told, does many wonderful things for the disciple. To begin with, he comes to us as another helper. Verse 16, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. So the disciples don't need to worry about how they're going to follow Jesus when he returns back to the Father, because Jesus is going to give them another helper. Notice that it's another helper, meaning they've had a helper all along, Jesus Christ. And now the Spirit's ministry to them, while Jesus goes to heaven, will be much like Jesus' ministry was to them while he was on earth. I've heard of some people, you know, say, oh, what what it would be like just to walk, just to see Jesus in person and walk with him. That is an insult to the Holy Spirit of God. He has given us a helper that is another helper. uh, He's called the Spirit of Christ in Romans 8. And Paul says that to have the Spirit in you is like having Christ himself in you. The Spirit mediates the person of Christ to us so fully and so perfectly that it is to have Jesus with us. Just in another helper. And here's something more, so here's something more about the Spirit. He will be with His disciples forever, verse 16 says. There will never be a moment when the disciples don't benefit from the Spirit's presence after Jesus goes to the Father. The Spirit will be with Jesus' disciples continually. He won't ever need to leave them as Jesus is leaving them now because all of the Son's work will have been completed on the cross and in the resurrection. All the Spirit will be doing now is staying to apply the work of the Son to the disciples until Jesus returns. So he's with them forever. The Spirit will also lead Jesus' disciples into the truth. Verse 17 calls him the Spirit of truth. So in the same way that Jesus is full of truth and is the truth and speaks the truth, so also the Spirit reveals the truth. The truth that's very much bound up with Jesus. 
In verse 26, it says the Spirit will teach the disciples all things. He will bring to their remembrance the things that Jesus taught. And then in chapter 16, verse 13, it's the Spirit who guides the disciples into all the truth because He speaks whatever the Father and the Son tell Him to speak. The result, of course, is our inspired New Testament. We have to read. But even now, the Spirit's ministry of truth still goes on as He illumines our mind to the Word and awakens us to everything we need for life with Him. The lies of the world and its evil ruler will not carry the disciple away because the spirit of truth will lead them in the truth. The spirit will mark off Jesus' followers from the world. The disciple will listen to the spirit's truth. The world won't receive it. That's what he tells us at the verse 17. You whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. So this is what will mark us off from the world. We, we follow the truth because the Spirit is teaching us the truth. So the Spirit will also lead Jesus' disciples in the truth. The Spirit will also administer the new resurrection life of Christ to us. Meaning when Jesus rises from the dead as the first fruits of the coming kingdom, His life, which represents the sort of life we're all going to have if we believe in Him, eventually... In our resurrection bodies. That was a long sentence. Let me back up. (laughs) When Jesus rises from the dead as the first fruits of the coming kingdom, his life will begin the new age of resurrection, hope, and victory, which is what we all look forward to having one day in our own resurrection bodies. There's life bound up with the coming kingdom over which Jesus rules in his resurrection body. And the Spirit begins ministering that life to us even before that kingdom comes in full. It's part of his ministry between the the resurrection and the second coming. The Spirit in this age ministers Jesus' resurrection life to us even before the resurrection comes. It gets a bit tricky in verses 18 to 20, but that's essentially what I think is going on. I want you to read it with me slowly. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, some take that to mean that he will come to them in various resurrection appearances. I take it to mean he's going to come to them in the Holy Spirit. In the ministry of the Spirit. Jesus is not the Holy Spirit. Let's just get that clear. So he's going to come to them in the ministry of the Spirit. His coming to them has to have some permanence to it if he's he's not leaving them as orphans. It's got to be more than just an appearance here and there. He's going to be with them, not going to be orphaned. So, I will come to you, I think he's saying, in the ministry of the Spirit. Now track with me in verse 19, because this is where he starts fleshing out his resurrection life in connection with the Spirit. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. 
That refers to the cross based on what he says in chapter 16. Verse 16, 20, and 22. You can look it up when you get home. So I think he's referring to the cross there. So yet a little while and the world will see me no more because I'm going to die for sinners. But you will see me. Now that's talking about a resurrection appearance. So they're going to see him. Jesus is not going to appear to the whole world when he rises from the dead. He's only going to appear to his disciples and 500 other brothers at one time, Paul tells us. And then Paul. That's it. So, watch this here. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, because I'm going to die. You will see me, because I'm going to rise. Because I live, you also will live. And this is where the ministry of the Spirit comes in. Because Jesus lives in his resurrection victory, all his disciples will experience the resurrection life, even before the day of resurrection comes. Because I live, you also will live. And so this isn't just ending with the the 11 here. It's for everybody who follows Jesus until he returns again. So because I live, you also will live. And that's because the Spirit is administering Jesus' resurrection life to us. And that life includes this, verse 20. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. I in you. Because of Jesus' resurrection life and the ministry of the Spirit, we share a communion with Jesus that's likened to the communion he shares with his own Father. (laughs) That's deep fellowship with Jesus. There is nothing but life in the relationship between father and son. Nothing but life between them. And Jesus is saying, when the Spirit comes and ministers that resurrection life to you, you're going to be experiencing the sort of eternal life that me and my father experience together. And you're going to experience because I am going to be in you in the ministry of the Spirit. That's why he can say in chapter 17, verse 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So the Spirit helps us like Jesus. He stands with us forever, leads us into the truth, administers Jesus' resurrection life. One more thing the Spirit does. He keeps us close to God. In the Old Testament, you know, God dwelt among his people in the tabernacle. And then later on, he dwelt among his people in the temple. But here we see that God chooses to indwell his people through the Spirit. Jesus' disciples become God's indwelling place by the Spirit. You want to know where Paul gets his language? Of, and Peter, of the church being the temple of God? It's from Jesus right here. Verse 23. If anyone loves me... He will keep my word and my Father will love him. And we, Father and Son, will come to him and make our home with him. Which is a pretty remarkable statement because in chapter 14, verse uh, 3, 
Is it three? Is it three? Yes, it's three. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. We talked there in chapter 14, verse 3, that this place, this dwelling of God is referring to when Christ comes and brings us into his kingdom. Jesus is saying, using the same language, this place is the same word for the, the home here. We will come and make our home with you, meaning we don't have to wait for the kingdom in order to experience the sort of fellowship we're going to experience there. Father and Son dwell in us now through the Spirit. It's not in full. It's not by sight. But we enjoy it. We enjoy their fellowship now. So if you love Jesus today, you enjoy the particular Ministry of the Holy Spirit helping you, standing beside you, leading you into truth, giving you new life, and keeping you close in fellowship with God, Father, Son, and Spirit. I think an awareness of the Spirit's presence with the disciple of Jesus sometimes escapes us. We forget that the Spirit is just as much a person as Father and Son. And that he is present with, with us now, alive and working in us. We forget Jesus sent him to our advantage, chapter 16 says, while he's away. And the Spirit truly came. We saw that at, we see that in Acts 2 at Pentecost, the Spirit coming on the church. He truly came and the Spirit is here to help us. In the midst of our turmoil. He is here to counsel us. In the midst of our confusion. He is here to support us when wrecked with devilish accusations. He is here to convict us when we dishonor Christ. And do what's unhealthy to our souls. He is here also then to guide us back to our greatest lover and truth teller. Jesus Christ. When we're lost in a world of haters and liars. He is here to shine the spotlight on Jesus' glory when life is too dark. He is here to be our companion in the day of fear and forsakenness. We forget the Spirit is with us when we crack open the Word. He stands ready to mediate the glory of God's presence should we simply bow the knee to Jesus with love. And that's true for anybody in this room. You bow the knee to Jesus because of what he has done for you on the cross. God himself will take up residence in you by the Holy Spirit and you will know eternal life. We forget that the reason he's in us now is that a day will finally come when the dwelling place of God is with man in all of its fullness and refulgent splendor. God will dwell with us and we will be his people and God himself will be with us as our God. So let's draw great courage from knowing that Jesus didn't leave us without help. He supplied us with perfect help alongside his Father because they both love us. He says it in verse 21, He who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him. 
And he says it again in verse 23. Jesus will even manifest himself to the one who loves him through the Spirit, a further expression of Trinitarian love. Not only does the Father love us by sending the Son to die for all our sins, He also loves us by sending the Spirit to call attention to His love for us in sending His Son. You read this also earlier from Romans 5. God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom He has given to us. So let's not forget the incredible gift we've been given in the Spirit, but daily express gratitude to God that He's with us forever. He's not going anywhere. He's with us to the day we, he's, he's, he's began His presence in us when we were born again, and He's with us to the day that we're ushered into glory. He's the guarantee of our eternal inheritance until we actual, actually acquire possession of it. Ephesians 1.14 Think of the Spirit. Every morning you go to the office. You're not going to the office alone. You are going to the office with the Spirit of Jesus. Think of Him when you're sharing the gospel with friends and you begin experiencing fears or you get blasted with their objections. You're not alone. The Spirit is with you to help. Think of Him when you're suffering and you are filling your pillow with tears at night. Jesus hasn't forsaken you. You have another helper who pours God's love into your hearts as he leads you to Jesus' cross and helps you to look at Jesus' glory again and again. Think of the Spirit when you're tempted by sin. You're not alone in the fight. God is with you to guide you into the truth and then act as the Spirit leads you away from sin to love more and more like Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is our God. He's not one who is far off doing His own thing while we get our act together here on earth. No, the people God loved in Christ and saved through Christ, He will ensure that we know and enjoy the fullness of Christ. And that's why He has sent the Spirit to us now to be with us always. This is all the more reason for us to love Jesus and to obey His Word. The Spirit, along with Father and Son, is for us to the end. Wes, you want to come with prayer?